Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. On a scale from 1 to 10, how do you rate your willingness to address workplace conflict? Today on Conflict Managed, Delia Grinville, Senior Executive Leader and host of the podcast To Live List, joins us for the last episode of 2022. Delia reminds us that installing systems in the workplace to address conflict is not enough. We must be willing to hold difficult conversations. How do we set the conditions to bring this about? Delia suggests we get better at humaning. Dr. Delia Grinville is a senior executive leader, process-driven change agent, and key strategist for driving large-scale technology change and business innovation. With more than 25 years' experience in high-tech roles, Delia is recognized by peers for her relentless push for quality and is known for her ability to translate complex strategies into actionable business plans. Outside of the corporate world, Delia is a public speaker, proud published author of the book Rants and Ramblings on Life and Wellness, and host of the To Live List podcast. Good morning, Delia, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Oh, hi. So glad you can have me on, Mary. It's really a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too, very much so. I was wondering if you could start us off by giving us a little bit of a history of your your working career. Sure. Um, I've had the good fortune to be a truly North American worker, um, having worked both in Canada and in the U.S., um, I started off in Canada because I'm Canadian and, um, and I worked there for five years full time before coming to graduate school here in the U.S. and then, um, starting, restarting my career in the U.S. So, uh, I, I think it's a unique point of view, Mary, to have worked in both cultures. When you were in Canada, what were your first jobs? I'm trained as a mechanical engineer. Uh, that's my background, but I never worked in it a day in my life. My first jobs were in um, grocery distribution, so uh, support of retail grocery. So we have in, I guess the way you would think about it from an American perspective or depending on where the listeners are coming from, but here we have like Kroger and Safeway and these huge department stores, but behind those department stores are the entire distribution chain for those department stores. So the buyers and the warehouses and all of that. So I worked for the whole, for that part of the division. So um, they took care of getting the food and all of the technology to the retail stores and to the franchise stores. My first jobs were technology, integrating technology in the point of sale systems integrating technology into warehouse and distribution systems. Uh, I left that company and I went on to be in another a hardware distribution kind of company. And then I was in a third party logistics company that supported people like Xerox and Crane and American Standard. What got you interested in, in the backside, the distribution? Uh, I don't know that I was primarily interested in that. I had had summer jobs there. So I knew the business and I was known to them. I came out during a recession. Uh, so that's why I didn't uh, go in and go into an engineering job, although I had applied. And um, I was known to that area, to those folks. And so um, it really, it sort of lent itself to continue on in that direction. And then I think one of the things that I learned coming out of school was as a mechanical engineer, I recognized I didn't want to work with machines. I wanted to work with people. And I didn't know a form of engineering that worked with people. Uh, in my university, which is very traditional, they still do not have the industrial engineering discipline in my university. They teach it under mechanical engineering. And so I just didn't encounter an engineering discipline that had something to do with people. And when I started working in these different supply chain distribution kinds of roles, I kept bumping into these consultants that had industrial engineering degrees. And so when I mentioned I went back to grad school, that's why, because I wanted to sort of, oh, wow, complete that, that need to have a kind of engineering that worked with people and systems. And I think that is so interesting. Um when I think about uh, young people or even myself when I was young and what kind of careers are available and what is the path to get there, there are such a wide variety of opportunities and possibilities. But 
we don't necessarily know what they are or how to get there. I fully agree, right? And I know a lot of students are concerned, first of all, like, will they pick the right thing as an undergraduate? And some of them are also getting get nervous and say, well, maybe I won't do any post-secondary, which I don't really recommend. And then they're just sort of like, well, I don't, I need to pick the right one. And the truth of the matter is more than I think nine times of 10, you're going to pick the right one because whatever you pick, you're going to retool it to be the right thing for your life. Uh, but of course, that's a hard thing to trust as a young person if you've never experienced it. So, yeah, I 100% agree. I, I was in higher ed for over 20 years and the, all this anxiety from these students about picking the right major so that this is they're picking the trajectory of their life. And well, there's a little bit of that. It's not as dramatic as they think. They don't realize, no, they're learning transferable skills. They're learning how to be a leader, be a learner, um, critical thinking skills. And I mean, if you want to be a nurse, you go to nursing school, right? And if you want to be an engineer, you know, or you want to do computer, you know, computer coding, there are some specific, you know, but by and large, a lot of it is um, as your own experiences and figuring out what you want, being able to apply that. Yeah. And I think it's hard because I have two students right now, one who's an undergraduate and just finishing up and one who's a senior and the senior is really procrastinating about applying. And I'm just sort of, he finally did one application. Well, now two, but I think he thinks the stakes are incredibly high and the stakes are what they are. And everyone's always, you know, you hear so many students worried about getting into a particular university but wherever you go will be the university for you. That's just how it works out. And if it doesn't, you might transfer. And then the next university will be the university for you. So you just have to sort of go through the path and recognize, as you said, you're picking up skills and experiences along the way that somehow mesh together. Of course, you don't know the whole big picture, right? You're in the middle of this mosaic of your life. And you can only see what's around you for the most part. I mean, some people have big visions, but even if they have big visions, they have no idea about the details about how they'll get to where they're going. And so I think we're all sort of in that, you know, we're all in the same pot from that perspective. So just going along with the experiences is part of the way you figure out where you're going. And it's always so surprising as you get to a destination and you think, oh, I wasted my time taking an extra year and studying French. And then you find out that all of a sudden you are going to be, you know, your job is moving to X, Y place in France. And thank God you have some spoken language or else you it wouldn't fit in. But that's like 15 years later. You just don't know that's going to happen yet. That is just so true. And it's easier said at this stage of our life than when you are um, young and starting out and thinking, no, no, I need this specific thing. But it is so true. Um, I posted on social media today about these mugs that I had made for this presentation I had given to, to an organization. And a former student replied and said, that looks like the that looks like the index cards. You used to let us cram information in on one side for the final exam. And I'm like, Hey, transferable skills. I didn't know as I was coming up with these little tiny study guides that maybe my brain works that way. And now I'm taking how I was helping students into, you know, just a different kind of training. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's a fun exam. It's a fun exercise. I think if I were like a, a student counselor or something like that, you would have them like look at all the things that you thought were useless or didn't have meaning and see how many of those things are incorporated in your life now? Because there's so many of those things where you think you're not learning anything and you are actually picking up a skill, even if it's as much as um, my my daughter works with uh, preschool to eight and after school program. And um, it's so funny because she has a little brother and she's had a little brother her whole life. And well, most of it. And she's just sort of like, she told him, like, you don't know how much of my day is telling people they're not going to get that stick. Right. But, you know, but it, but on the other hand, there were a lot of times she had to negotiate with her brother in that way. And so even in your family relationships, you could be getting those skills that are meaningful to you in the workplace. Conversely, 
you could also be developing skills that or habits that are are strenuous to you in the workplace. Absolutely. I, I love what you said. Useless. You know, it's sort of t- turning, reframing. Nothing is useless. That job at McDonald's is not useless. I was talking to somebody a few months ago who said it was somebody they had worked with in high school at McDonald's that 10, 15 years later, it was a contact that helped them get a different job, a professional job. I mean, there's so many different ways those intro jobs can really form us, make connections, network, but just the life skills. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I envy my sister. I, I didn't think I would, but I, you know, it was, she was a receptionist at a law firm and that was what triggered her in her twenties to become a lawyer. Cause she was a liberal arts degree and she didn't know what to do. And she thought, well, I can do this. And so she went back and, you know, she became an attorney, but being the receptionist at the law firm certainly changed her ability to network with executives, to know how to move people around in situations. Cause sometimes you got people coming in that shouldn't see the other people, et cetera, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And she was schooled by one of the seasoned receptionists, right. And then just sort of a, you know, it's a, it's um, a profession where you, well, she's an executive now, but there's a, it's a profession where you, you host a lot of people and you go out for a lot of dinners and those kinds of things. And that was the thing that she practiced in her twenties. So it seemed like a receptionist, such a great job, but it really was a job that paid dividends uh, later on in life in terms of, and, and I hate the terminology anyway, soft skills, because the soft skills are the, usually the skills that mean the most. Right. Absolutely. Right. The the human skills, uh, when we think about what a life well lived actually looks like. That's a great example you gave of your sister. Thanks for sharing that. My mind is colored with all the different sorts of ways in which she's benefited. And then her clients have benefited from all that she gained from that. So you move to the States, you go to graduate school, and then what happens next for you? Uh, well, life intervenes. I, I, I meet my husband at graduate school. He's American. So I'm not going home to Canada, like I promised everybody that I was going to. And uh, he wanted to study. Uh, he had another master's that he wanted to complete on the West Coast. So not only am I not going back to Canada, but I'm also doing the one thing I said I would never do, which is take a job in high tech or related to technology. Because my husband wants to study in the Bay Area. <laughs> 20 <laughs> years ago at the height of the uh, Silicon Valley. So there I was, you know, on Camino del Real or whatever it's called, <laughs> you know, going from job interviews and doing those kinds of things. So just never actually say never because you just don't know what's going to happen. So I ended up um, working in high tech and I started in one company in the Bay Area. And after we had kids, ended up moving to another Bay Area company, but I don't live in the Bay Area anymore. So what did you, what kind of jobs did you do for those tech companies? <clears throat> so I was in supply chain when I left, but I was always consultative. So always putting in new ideas, transformative projects. I kind of did my research in that in the master's and PhD um, different forms of transformation. I actually worked for, ironically, as a Canadian for NASA and for the Naval Surface Warfare Center, which I feel, and they funded my graduate work, which I feel is so bizarre from a Canadian perspective, but also so lucky. Those are some great headquarters to be able to have seen with your own eyes and not in movies. Um, and so I went into a research a role And so advancing some of the technology of the company that I worked for at first. And from there, it was also integrating the technology. So finding things that you would research, finding ways to put them into products, which sounds really easy because you would think that people want the new ideas, but sometimes they're way too novel and people are not ready for them. And then other times, I think that researchers struggle because They want to give their whole baby to the product team. And really the product team just wants the baby finger, (laughs) not not the whole baby. And you have to have a kind of skill to be able to do that, which luckily I did. 
Um, but I think from a research perspective, you, you worked in a university. I think other researchers feel that that kind of, yeah, that kind of leaning is a, a little bit mercenary. But uh, I mean, when you're researching in an institution like a company, that's kind of the point. You know they're not going to be able to adopt everything right away. And so you have to sort of separate yourself from what you offer. So when you think about all the different sorts of work experiences that you've had, what strikes you as an outstanding experience, either with an individual, a team, a group? And what was it that was so good about it for you? I think um, I have several outstanding experiences. And I, I say that because those people have remained in my life. So they're not just, they, they were not work. Um, you know, work was the way that I met them or the place that we met, but they've remained in my life, whether they be bosses or peers or direct reports. I mean, the fantastic, outstanding relationships, I would categorize those as the they also turned into long-term friendships. And I'm not going to say that we were perfect in every aspect in the workplace that, you know, it's not possible as a human, but, um, you know, we were able to use that experience in the workplace as a launching board for something else. And I have folks that are, you know, it's been decades. I mean, my graduate school boss you know, her kids are also in university now too. And we were just exchanging about what was going to happen and whatever. And we're always in touch. And so um, we got the work done. And and even though it was, we had challenges at the time, uh, I think the way, the way I would classify the outstanding relationships is the challenges at the time, although human and interrelational um, were never, they never became quote unquote personal in, I hate the buzzword, but I'm going to say it in a toxic kind of way. They were just like, oh, this happens, but we still intend to have a great relationship after this. So we're going to muddle through this messy part, talk through our issues and then move on. So those, that's what I would classify as outstanding. I like the way you phrase that muddle through the messy parts. There's so much messiness in life. Um, humans are messy. Our bodies are messy. And, uh, what do we do with that messiness? Right. We can choose to, as you said, focus on the most important things, right. Those quote unquote soft skills. I also don't really like that terminology because it sounds like it's, they're less than, but they are more than that. They are more than I, I believe. And how we deal with the messiness in life says everything about the quality of our life. It really does. And, and I think, and I think we're taught that even from at the kindergarten preschool level, but it's not something that's codified as, you know, the important part is this, right? Did you go and say sorry to your friend after you, you know, you guys got in a squabble, you know, those kinds of things, we don't codify them as the most important things of life. And yet when you're going to be, um, hired as an executive or hired as the front person for a, uh, a a retail business, et cetera. It is exactly that skill that they're looking for. You know, your ability to deal with the messiness of life and then make it relational and come back on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. So on the other side, when you think about your work relationships or issues at work, has there been a particular situation that was hard. Um, and what was it that was hard for you? I think there have been, of course, multiple hard situations. My God, I've been working since, you know, <laughs> since <laughs> we have an expression in our Caribbean culture, but since Jesus was a little boy. So, I mean, it's a long, long time. So there's been a lot of conflict. And I started working as a, I wouldn't say, yeah, pretty much working, earning money is like, 11 year old, 12 year old babysitting. I babysat quadruplets at one point, which I'd tell you is a management preparation that most people <laughs> are not aware of how that, well, how that could help you. You imagine m managing four kids of the same age and you're only about seven years older than them. How do you do that? I really like their older brother. So I, I really was trying to curry favor in that way. <laughs> 
that didn't make sense because it just allowed him to go out with other people anyway <laughs> you know how teenage girls are we're not too smart in that respect <laughs> that was my love language anyway so um i think the big the big thing that um i would say would show up for me as conflict is first of all my expectations of the leader right and my expectations of the leader to be really penetrating the humanity of the people around them um, my mother was a, uh, a senior manager executive and she was i learned a lot from listening to the uh, driving in the car as you know my my dad did the shuttling um, to work in school so my mom could get her last minute you know how we have to get our hair and makeup on you know so she would do and then she would also talk to him about what was going on at work and she was a very thoughtful leader um, and she would you know I just recently posted on LinkedIn one of her quotes from Shakespeare and she would say there is no art to read the mind's construction through the face, right? Which is a quote from Shakespeare. And so she would say, you know, people would come in and say that maybe Hyacinth's in a bad mood. That was my mom's name today. And she probably didn't like my deliverable, but she's like Hyacinth lives with three teenage girls who are two and a half years apart in age. So overwhelmed sometimes and it has nothing to do with you. And I think that um, situation becomes a, an underlying uh, thematic conversation with, I think, anything that happens with conflict in me in the workplace. I'm expecting the leader to have that thoughtfulness that I saw that my mother characterized, and they don't. They, they'll take any story hook, line, and sinker. They just don't do the investigation. Um, and then as the narrative builds right? There's then so many places to pick apart the narrative that it becomes overwhelming to be in dialogue with them if the goal on both sides isn't resolution, which oftentimes it isn't, at least in my experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're taught it's it's win-lose. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? We can't have sports end in a tie. You know, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. And so that's the same with arguments, right? My position, your position. And I think I mean, I think it's an easy turning away to see everyone loses, especially at work or in families. And so we want this win-win restorative. But unless people are told that and modeled that, it's it's a kind of against our sports culture and just the culture in general. I think that whew, when you say that, that's a, a ding, ding, ding moment for me, because I recall um, an experience with an employee that... Um, although I thought I had rallied really, you know, went downhill and not because it should have. I mean, I was over any issue that had happened, but the employee definitely came from a win-lose culture and also came from a win-lose win family culture and also came from an authoritative culture. And so at any point, you know, um, they were also ready to, where's the scoreboard? Where's the scoreboard? I remember this particular person saying, oh, I'm going to do that because I might need a favor from that person later on, which is not the way I negotiate work, right? I'm not doing things because I want something from you and I'm keeping a scoreboard with you. I'm doing things because the business requires them and because the overall goal is to you know, advance the company, advance the shareholders and advance the mission. And I know people are going to say, oh my God, that's so Pollyanna. But I think that's the distinction in how I work and also what also causes conflict. Because a lot of people do think it's from a Pollyanna Pollyannic perspective and they do feel that there must be something on the scoreboard for me. But that's just my view of work. Because work for me is not my whole life. And so I think that's why it's possible for me to do that work work that way. It's why I've been good at um, uh, 
working across boundaries at work and seeing the problem holistically. That's why folks hire me. But I also can see it from the other side of the narrative. That's what causes conflict with peers or anyone who would be threatened by that perspective because they must, they think she must be joking. There's no one who actually thinks that, you know, yeah, she's just acting like a goody two shoes. What a brown nose or blah, blah, blah. But it's really not because for me a long, long time ago, and maybe from all of those conversations in the car, maybe from watching my mother as a, as an immigrant, as a woman, as a, uh, you know, descendant of the African diaspora, working in an all white male environment um, and knowing the challenges that that gave her in terms of career advancement goals and all the things that she wanted. And, you know, but also knowing that she looked at her culture as her, as her legacy and she looked at her as her kids as her legacy. So her perspective was, of course, she wanted to get the next job and the next promotion, but it wasn't as important as something compared to, right? And also, I think she understood at some level, or if she didn't, my dad would also talk to her about it, like there were things that weren't going to be available to her. And so she kind of got that. And I think that really influenced her ability to sort of keep in the what part of this work do I do for myself? When I'm at the end of the day and I didn't go to a kid activity, I didn't do whatever, what did I do for myself because of the things I believed in? And that's kind of the role model that I saw and that's the way I work. How wonderful to have such a woman um, as your mother, as a role model for not only how to do business, but how to do life and family and figuring out what matters. And what you said or the quote that she was so often that her Shakespeare quote and every example you just gave, it's we come to work and we have our own set of expectations and our own goals for what we think work is supposed to be and what it's for. And we're up against somebody else who thinks they've got a scoreboard because that, as you said, that's how they were raised. And everybody in my family knows, oh, mom just wants a tie. Yeah, I do. If they're evenly matched, they're evenly matched. To me, the end of this time, but how do we communicate when we have all these different backgrounds that are coming? And then I just look at somebody and I interpret as I look at their face and I think about myself. They're mad at me. They want to usurp me. They are putting on. That's not how they really are. And it's all in reference to ourself. It's very hard. And no wonder we are so full of conflict just in general. If we don't have empathy for one another, space for one another, really legitimize a variety of different ways of being in the world and being at work, and then space in our organizations to have real conversations. Not not too personal. I, I'm not about that if you're not interested. Absolutely. Respecting people's boundaries, but space to talk about how we work, our expectations, and how to move forward together. Hey, Mary. That's good. That's a good, 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 good summary. Yeah. I think, too, this notion of knowing or believing that we know how someone else is processing something was very instrumental at the beginning of work when we moved from the cottage industries all into the industrial um, situations, you know, everyone in the factory, in the big building, you know, and it's not even that people really cared what you were thinking. They told you how to think <laughs> you are not, you know, or, or not to think, um, you know, you're not going to do that here. You're going to do this. But as knowledge workers, we require that mental capacity, that discerning ability of the people who um, you know, help us create the the product or the service that we're, you know, the company is making. And we cannot really, I think, responsibly ask them to also separate the rest of their brain if they're doing that work. Some of the creative thinking comes from experiencing their emotions, from thinking through challenges or high points that are not even necessarily related to the work right? Their minds have to be free in order to, to do the, to do the work. So um, yeah, you ask a really good question because while you're thinking, while you were speaking and 
presenting that mom, you know, wants a tie, then what does a tie mean to you? And it might not be me the same thing as what a tie means to somebody else. Because in soccer, you don't know a lot about soccer or football, as people might say. I mean, that tie has a meaning in the round, you know, in the early rounds, you still advance with a tie, right? right. And then, you know, but you go to a kickoff in a different situation, a different scenario. And so, you know, are you in those early round ties or are you in the kickoff scenario? And I think life doesn't come with one of those, what are they called? You know, match diagrams where you're going up the tree of who's playing who. So people don't know if they're in the early round tie, in which case, chillax, you're still probably going to advance. Or if they're in the kickoff tie, in which case we want to avoid the tie. Right. And so. I think people operationalize sometimes life in those kinds of ways. And we often don't have time to to talk in depth about what our mental model is for how we're processing life, how we're processing the relationships at work, elsewhere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what is what is winning? What is losing? Because, you know, I look at somebody else and say, you've won. And that person says, won what? Whatever you think I've won, I don't want this. I want what you have, or, you know, it's the grass is greener, but having, I think having those conversations, this doesn't have to be very talky, but getting to know our colleagues, what does done look like? What is a team look like? What is working together? Well, look like. And so we can kind of set those expectations because when you were talking about the expectation you have as for leaders as being thoughtful and I see leaders, other leaders being paired against your mother. And I, and I wonder, is that a fair expectation? How many of your leaders actually achieved? And knowing what you know now, do you think that you have had the right expectations for your, for leaders or has it been too, too high? Too lofty. Actually, I think what I've known, what I know now is when I saw the leader could not meet expectations either to support the program, the department, the organization, the multi-billion dollar business because of their own emotional self-development. And I I don't want to say my mom was not a perfect leader either or a perfect human either. She had things to work on her development. But when I witnessed that from the leader, there was always a, um, there was rare, there's rarely a bottom up mechanism to have the conversation. There's plenty of top-down design to have that conversation, but not bottoms up. There's no way to tell a leader, even if they aren't your um, hierarchical leader or organizational leader, let's say they're a matrix leader or a sponsor of a project or something, at least prior to recently, I didn't know of a tool that you could administer or deliver to them or a conversation, a structured conversation that said, here are the expectations person, And this is where you can support. This is where you're doing well. And this is where you're not. And if you don't want to do these things, then we need to find another sponsor or a leader for this particular program. Or, you know, and or I have to do career development to move to someplace else where I can get that kind of support. But in particular, I did not know of mechanisms like that. I've since done research and realized that, you know, you can hold a sponsor accountable. You can hold a manager accountable. I mean, it's a whole set of different conversations, Mary, though. And it's a really an advanced thing, I think, for a, for a person to do, because first of all, you have to have the accountability metrics. Then you have to be willing to either meet with a sponsor to to disclose them, or you should do it beforehand and say, hey, you know what? We fa- I found out that you're going to be helping with the, you know, 10 person bakery remodel and blah, blah, blah. Um, you're the one with the dollars, but here's what I need from you. When we're being successful, I need X, Y, Z. When we're in conflict, I need A, B, C. Um, I'm going to be checking in on you on, you know, biweekly or whatever. Those kinds of things, um, I didn't have them in my early vocabulary. I might've seen people role model them, but usually it was only in times of like postmortem or crisis or something like that. So, but I think now 
there's a lot of institutions out there that help folks to understand that, you know, this is part of how you advance the work, reduce the conflict, take stress off yourself, and also stress out the sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said, willingness. And because you can have all the systems in place, which first of all, as you said, there are very few systems in place. But once you put the systems in place, how do you get employees to either talk down, you know, talk up to people or down to people depending where they are? How do you get them to be willing to do that? Then you have to have some sort of psychological safety because if you fear retribution, you're just not going to do it. You're going to see the lay of the land and take it as long as you can and or get your resume ready or move to a different department. And so to get folks to do that work, which will be so good for them in the organization, those pockets of psychological safety need to be developed. But as you've already mentioned, that takes high emotional intelligence from leadership to share power and then to train and empower from the top to the bottom. I say to the seasonal worker, everybody gets empowered to have these difficult conversations. And and emotional intelligence also implies that the upper level person wouldn't be threatened. But you know what we don't talk about? We don't talk about the threatened subordinate. Because a threatened subordinate, I would tell you, is far more dangerous than a threatened um, leader. Because a leader probably is getting a share of the pie and they understand what how the pie is being shared. But a threatened subordinate doesn't often have visibility what's what's going on on the top, really begins to believe, as you said, this is happening to me. Um, all of this is happening to me because of either things I've done or things they have done, the externalized they have done. And in that mode, what I have seen, you know, in countless organizations, and often what's scary is it's unwittingly, that weaponized subordinate becomes a detriment to the organization. And I use the word weaponize because they are usually weaponized by the same HR systems that are there to protect everyone, right? Because it's, as I was mentioning before, um, it's this idea of the narrative, who has the narrative. And oftentimes, you know, in the way that the legal structure is here in the U.S. uh, for personal privacy and protection. There's a lot of anonymity. The story could be building before we even hear the story from all sides. And then, you know, we sort of create a situation that's even messier than it need be because sometimes it was just like, are you sure that Mary looked at you that way? (laughs) You know, and then it was like, I mean, what day was that? Was that the day that Mary found out that her sister had, you know, was out of remission from cancer? Because that could have been that day, right? But then all the other Mary stories come together. And then all of a sudden, there sits Mary, you know, in doggy doo-doo with, um, you know, this transgression, this transgression, this transgression. So when I look at that and I really say, and I try to take a systems point of view, I say, okay, should we, should we put the pressure on the subordinate? I don't believe that. Should we put the pressure on the, 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 the leaders that they're interacting with to some degree? But if I have two humans who are working together and there's an issue, I need a third party, someone who can come in and really say, you know, this is this side, this is that the other side, but what are we trying to do together? And that's the sponsor and, or, you know, the senior manager who's also the sponsor. And oftentimes that's where I see organizations falling down because we promote, promote, promote these folks. And then when they're all great, when the bottom line's working, but when there's a conflict, um, you will never be ghosted so fast by your manager um, th- when there's conflict. Like you need to track them down on their cell phone, some of them, in order for them to actually show up. And and they just keep um, hoping that you'll work it out while they're delaying. And that's not healthy. And that's the part that concerns me because we don't have a metric that says conflict resolution the ability to manage and mediate between humans is 
part of the leadership strengths. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like if you don't know how to, if you're conflict averse, then you're probably not fit to be a leader. Because that is one of the jobs that a leader does. It's not all the leader does, but if you're unable to, unwilling to help people or deal with mistakes, help people on their worst day or deal with people on their worst day, then I'm raising my question. I'm raising my hand, and Zoom yes. also showed a raising hand at the same time. <laughs> I've never seen that before. But you said if you are conflict averse, but let's go back to the fundamentals. What does conflict averse mean? Yeah. It means different things for different people in different families. Yeah. Right. So we're coming again in the situation where we've thrown together these human beings who do not have any connection with one another. And we say to you, we say to them, you know, they say, are you good at managing conflict? And all of them say yes. <laughs> but we don't know from what scale they're saying yes to. Yeah. Right. Because I would argue that every leader that I work for would say they're fine with managing conflict. And some of them as a sales situation, yes. And some of them in a, you know, uh, um, a customer situation, yes. But I'm going to say something that's going to be controversial, but I would say the biggest challenge that I see, because I work in high tech, is what men believe about women. And I'm not saying that men aren't my allies. I've had tons of amazing men, um, in my sphere, but what men be, believe about women, but can I say something more controversial? Yes. What women believe about women, you know, there is a gender component to conflict that we never quite work out because it's not worked out in high school, you know, all, all the way through the grades. Um, and then college, we don't have that same kind of, um, circle of you know folks that we're seeing every day because you know high school we still have enough we have our grade and enough classrooms where we're still with the same people but college it gets more and more sort of dispersed and then we go into the workplace and that same kind of thing and I think the psychology shows right that our most of our brains aren't fully developed until we're like 28 25 28 so we go into work still in some degrees with not even a fully developed brain, but certainly about how to work in with gender differences in a neutral kind of way. Uh, where would we have done that, you know, with an adult brain? We don't. And then when we, when we have to do it, we're at work. And then there's sort of legal consequences. There's financial consequences there's reputational consequences, there's career consequences to knowing how to do this or how to interact with others in this way. And quite frankly, everyone I've met, including myself, can always benefit from more of that work. Yeah, absolutely. So many good points you've just made. And I, I, I like what you said, and I want to clarify about being conflict averse because I would, I don't like conflict. I mean, it's what I do for a living now. I don't like it. But when I have personal conflict or conflict with who somebody I'm working with, I don't like it. But the question is, then what do we do? There's lots of stuff about work I don't like or family stuff. I don't really like doing dishes or laundry. Um, I don't like cleaning up after the cat. You know, there's lots of stuff I don't like. But moving past that, because now I'm so convinced about the benefits of having difficult conversations and checking my assumptions and really wanting to be curious about my own emotional needs and desires and other people, I think that you're so right. No matter what background we come from and all the different ways in which we are different, we can come up with a set of skills that leaders, everybody, not just leaders, learns like how to work Excel this is how we deal with conflict. These are the basic components. And this is still why it's so hard. Let's have that third party that can help us to work through it, but it be expected to work through it. And no, you know, no walking on eggshells and no wishing it away. Yeah. And I think when you bring up Excel as a skill, that sort of was a good equivalent for me because you know, not everyone's good at using a spreadsheet. Some people are good at reading the data. Some people are good at getting the data ready. Um, some people are good at, you know, visualizing the data. Not everyone's good at using the spreadsheet. We have some Excel competency, maybe for a particular role that we expect. 
And I think the same thing to some degree with, you know, our EQ, with our conflict um, resolution capabilities, and even our tolerance for the discomfort of conflict, right? We can't expect everyone to do it the right, the same way. And I, I feel that folks uh, are very quick in some um, organization cultures to say, you know, there's a right way of doing this. And that's why I brought that gender thing to pass, um, you know, because I'm not trying to say that I want to live in the world of mean girls or that I think our women are mean or men are mean or whatever. But I'm just saying that we formed early in our minds what are the right ways for these interactions. And one of the earliest shared common experiences that we have is gender. And then, so then, you know, how does that layer into our work interactions and our expectations? And yeah. it's so interesting to watch, uh, especially in some of the, you know, I've been in predominantly male dominated fields, you know, where we'll set goals and expectations around what it is, how many women should be working here? How many women in this field? How many women to get these opportunities? And the women are also working together to set these expectations and to move them forward. But what makes the expectation stick and makes the person stay is that word which you said, willingness. Again, one of those human things. How is that? We don't measure willingness to... And all of, and that would be a multivariate thing, right? Will, willingness would have all of these components to it, but it's not something that someone measures and no one knows how to identify. No one knows how to make it happen. Usually if it's not there, we know how to identify if someone has it, has the it that makes people stay. But even in their execution of the it that makes people stay or feel comfortable or helps to resolve conflicts or whatever. It's still a one-off. They're like a genie in a bottle and we don't know how to replicate that. And I know you're talking about systems that allow us to replicate that. So there are things that exist, but to train people up in an environment that they were working in that way would take a certain percentage of time away from work that a lot of corporations, I'm speaking in generalizations here, um, might not see the value of yet. Yeah. And I think, you know, so I used the example of the spreadsheet and and I like how you went with it. Like people are different, good at different things. And But then I thought, well, is that really what I want to say? Because conflict is human. It has to do with our emotions. It has to do with our perceptions. Because if it wasn't, then we wouldn't have conflict. If we didn't feel anything about it, there would be no conflict. If we didn't have a certain set of perceptions and values that differed from somebody else, no conflict. And so conflict is very particular. It's very located in time and place and context. And so while I do think there are skills that we can empower people and systems that we can put in place and have culture expectations and assistance, it will continually be a struggle. Um, and I think a struggle worth having try, to try to humanize our workplaces so that, you know, everyone is treated with dignity and respect, which I think is the bare minimum. But then more than that, we get people to flourish and people are flourished when their basic needs, when they, their basic needs are met, that when they have problems, there's an actual route to addressing those problems. And it's, is I think you've done an excellent job of illustrating how messy it is. But what a worthwhile endeavor it still is. A hundred percent. You know, I I really think I, I mentioned the children that I have, and I'm sure lots of people here are invested in young people. Um, you know, we want the workplace to be better for them. The people before us, I hope, wanted it to be better for us, right? You know, and um and every generation of worker is chipping away at what better means. And we have some insights now around how to continue, continue to improve work. Uh, but I think the most important thing is when you ask me what was an outstanding experience, it's, you know, those people I said that, you know, have remained in my life for a long time. Work is a really important place. After school, 
it really is the place for which we get to interact with other humans. And so that investment into work, as you're saying, um, you know, is really important because, you know, what more than our humanity and our dignity uh, for the hours and, you know, the time, you know, percentage of our lived lives that will be committed to this thing called work. So um, we call it conflict. I, I don't know. I want a better word for it, you know, because I mean, conflict comes with a lot of baggage, right? But um, may I coin my own term here if it's not coin? Um, you know, more like we need to be better at humaning and that's what we want to be, you know? Um, and uh, and humaning has ups and downs. It's not just, you know, you know, blue skies and sunny days. It's got ups and downs and we are willing to invest in so many parts of the human experience. Um, and we're still trying to figure out how to do it at work. Yeah. Well, Delia, thank you so much for uh, your thoughts. Very thought provoking for myself today. And uh, I appreciate your time. Oh, and thanks so much, Mary, for having me on. And um, I hope that uh, people enjoy this episode. And may I just say to the listeners also that I have my own podcast. Please do. Um, it's, yeah, it's called uh, To Live List. And we talk about the ups and downs of life on this podcast. And I would be glad for folks to also follow follow me there. And I will put a link to the Live List and the show notes. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, take care. All right. Thanks a lot, Mary. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Thank you, Delia, so much for sharing with us today on Conflict Managed. I really enjoyed our conversation. And here we are at the end of 2022. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to Conflict Managed. And if there is a topic you would like addressed or questions you have for our guests, please let us know. Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services. You can find us online at 3 conflictrestoration.com. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.